0: For any of us that have used the internet in the last few years, and especially those of us who are on social media, you've probably come to realize that the algorithms, I guess, that different companies use have become quite intelligent. You can search for something, and I have heard reports of even just speaking over the phone or using something like Alexa. Alexa to look for something to research something and all of a sudden on your internet on your Google homepage on your Facebook page pops up an ad for that very item they have said that target knows that you are pregnant before you have told anyone simply because you will start researching prenatal vitamins and diapers and what to do this when this happens and what to do when and all of a sudden you will get in the mail coupons for Formula and diapers and the like. Now, you also notice that it's pretty rare, it does happen, but it's pretty rare that you get some sort of ad on your Facebook feed or even a banner on Google that doesn't really pertain to you. It's nothing you're interested in, nothing you've researched. In terms of banner ads, in fact, I know many of you found our church that way. You weren't even specifically looking for this church, or it wasn't on one of the results in your Google search, but an ad popped up because you were looking for a church in the Bay Area. But that's because you were looking for a church. They are very specific. They are very targeted. Why not just blast everyone with an ad for that oak dresser or those diapers? Well, because it's a waste of time. But more specifically for those companies, it's a waste of money to pay for all of those ads and all of those emails, many of which will just go straight into spam. If they're not targeting someone, they would likely make money off of. But there is one industry that doesn't care about that. There is one industry that just blanket shoots out emails to almost everyone. And it's the industry that appeals to our desires for sexual immorality. Why don't they care about targeting? Why don't they care about just saving their money and targeting specific individuals? Because they are. Because what they do works. And it makes them money. It gets into people's heads to think about things that they may not have thought about before. It works for them because it appeals to the depraved, sinful nature of all men, historically, and now all women as well. And we have been talking about this. We have been talking about the dangers of sexual immorality, specifically and especially in the Christian's life, because this is what Paul has been addressing because of what was happening in ancient Corinth. And as we round off chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians this morning, we come to a very famous passage that provides an incredible promise regarding the believer and his relationship with God. And it is the truth of each individual believer being a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is a truth, a doctrine, a theology, a verse, a passage, which is often used as a source of worship as well as a conviction to holiness. And it is very interesting that this profound teaching is found within the context of sexual immorality. We probably all have referred to it, quoted it, talked about it, But have you ever noticed that the passage, the verse about every believer being a temple of the Holy Spirit is in the context of sexual immorality? And so what we find in our final passage of this series entitled God's Body, God's Choice is both a clear evidence of the sinfulness of immorality and a broader doctrine that permeates every aspect of the Christian life. By way of review, I want to read for you, starting in verse 12, our passage for this morning in verses 19 through 20. But in this series, we have been looking at verses 12 through 20, one of the, uh, how do I say this, Uh, one of the cons, I guess, and the pros and cons of uh, expository preaching, verse by verse preaching, is sometimes you can get so caught up in the details that you forget the wider context which if you notice is why usually after breaking apart a couple verses word by word, when I close the sermon, I will reread the whole passage because I want to remind you of the entire context. And I think that's important to do today, especially because we're finishing off this series on sexual immorality, but also because oftentimes these two verses, specifically verse 19, is taken out of context which, again, it applies to everything in the Christian life, not just how you use your physical body for immorality or morality, but it is important to see the full context of what Paul is talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know? that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her, for he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And our passage for this morning, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. For our outline this morning, in these two verses, verses 19 and 20, I want to give you four reasons we are to combat immorality. And I'm going to give you all four straight off the bat. Four reasons we are, as believers, to combat immorality. The first reason we are to combat immorality is because we are redeemed. The second reason we are to combat immorality is because we are redeemed. The third reason we are to combat immorality is because we are redeemed. But the fourth reason we are to combat immorality is because we are redeemed. All holiness, all obedience goes back to the gospel. Everything revolves around who we are, who you are, and what Christ has done for you. Everything. It's not about politics. It's not about Trump. It's not about Biden. It's not about society. It's not about abortion. It's not about any of those things. It's because you are redeemed to something new. Don't put the cart before the horse. Everything we do or believe must flow out of that. Whether it's immorality or any other sin, our motivation and ability to avoid temptation is found in our redemption. You cannot do it on your own strength. You cannot do it to try to achieve heaven. You can't work your way into the good opinion of God. You cannot improve on your relationship in His eyes. You're standing in His eyes post-salvation. You can't lose your salvation. We are not legalists. We are the redeemed. And so this morning, more specifically, four aspects of redemption that combat immorality. Four aspects of redemption, because it all revolves around that. That combat immorality. In other words, why we should resist the temptation to immorality, to fight and repent of immorality. Four aspects of our redemption that push us in that direction. The first aspect of redemption that that combats immorality is the constitution of the redeemed. The constitution of the redeemed. Look again at the beginning of verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? This is basic to the Christian life and fundamental to a proper understanding of sin in general. Previously in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul referred to the church, the the church as a whole, as, as an entity, as the temple of God. And we know that from the grammar in the Greek. Here... He is specifying that every individual believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So it's not we are, it's I am, you are, as an individual singular. Every one of you. There's no excuse. There's no, well, you know, I'm not really involved. It's them. It's you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And to make things clear, he points out that this is not a general statement of Christian holiness. It's not just a synonym for redemption, but that the Holy Spirit is literally in each and every one of us and millions around the world throughout history. If you recall, he uses the, from 316, it's the same word here, the word temple, it's the dwelling place of God. And of course, it's a a reference to the actual physical temple that once stood in Jerusalem, And that physical temple was very large and had different parts. Just like as you walk through the lobby, skipped the actual rooms where people sleep in and came to the meeting rooms, right? The temple had different places. The physical temple had the outer courts and the all too familiar inner court, the inner sanctuary, only for specific people, for direct access to God. The word that Paul uses here is the inner sanctuary. The part of the temple that people couldn't just hang out in, that not everyone could enter, and even those who could enter had to do it in a special way on a special day. But where once only the high priest could access God in that sanctuary, now we are the place and the Holy Spirit comes to us. It's an amazing thought. In the Synoptic Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read of the amazing scene upon Jesus' crucifixion and death where the veil, the curtain that was blocking the entrance to the inner sanctuary. By the way, in all three of those Gospels called the temple, using the same Greek word that we have here, it is torn in two, symbolizing the free entrance into the presence of God by any who believe in him. In other words, it was no longer just for certain individuals. And you didn't have to do all this ceremonial washing because Christ just did that for you on the cross. The incredible picture of access is made all the more incredible by the reality of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwelling those who are His own, thus making us all individual temples of God. By the way, for those of you who've been around, you know I say this every time Uh, there's a passage that significantly addresses the Holy Spirit. Please, as a Christian, don't refer to him as it. He is not an it. He is your God. He is your creator. And I think these days, especially because of uh, uh, people in our circles with a reaction uh, against extreme charismatic movements, we tend to underplay The Holy Spirit, we need to biblically announce and play what the Holy Spirit does. He is a he, he is a member of the Godhead. You are to worship him. As much as this always gets a chuckle, you wouldn't refer to your introduce your wife as it. How much more offensive to refer to your creator as such. Well, back to the temple. For the ancient Corinthian, this picture would be much more vivid, perhaps, than to the typical Westerner living in modern times because temples would be everywhere. For them, the allusion to temples would be clear as there were many false gods in the Greek and Roman polytheism, again, that we all studied in high school. Specifically, in this context, we know of the temple to Aphrodite, which was in ancient Corinth. And in that temple, fornication was considered a form of worship, a type of consecration, if you will, rather than desecration. And I mentioned before in our series that there were prostitutes engaging in immorality, specifically at that temple, as part of their worship of Aphrodite, Venus. What I didn't mention is that these women were actually priestesses, of Aphrodite, It was an official function. And as any good servant of a god or goddess, they engaged in acts that in their minds and according to their religion helped others worship, in this case, through prostitution, through immorality. As for the temple of the true God, just as the temple in Jerusalem housed the presence of God, so today the believer's body houses the spirit of God and the significance of your physical body and what you do with it couldn't be more clear it is significant it is important understand this reality how this plays out we we don't fully comprehend our minds are finite he's not locked in there it's not he's not just in you it's not a situation where there's just one we know that he is omnipresent he is spirit but understand that this is not just some a unique statement regarding Christian anthropology or a biological description. It is a spiritual reality that has great and grave bearing on everything that we do. Everything that you do. And for us, Christians, the point is clear. When you defile your body with acts of immorality, you are not just defiling your body. You are defiling that which is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. You are defiling a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not defiling Him. You can't do that. But you need to understand what your body is. God's body, God's choice. When I was serving on the mission field in Albania, uh, the church and the seminary that I served in were both in uh, the, the same room, the sanctuary of a, of a school that we were part of as well. that taught English and computers. Uh, actually, uh, the former home of the dictator of Albania, who was the first in the history of the world to officially call his country an atheist nation in the Constitution. You understand that for communism to work, you have to be atheist because you have to worship the state. But he actually made it authentic in the Constitution. Just amazing how, the, how God did that. To have the first evangelical seminary in the history of the nation being taught in the very room where he probably made decisions to send anyone who even just had a Bible in their attic to a labor camp for life. But I digress. In that room... We had a podium, much like this, but more permanent. And in the, uh, you know, this was a place where uh, we had the luxury of uh, everything was custom made, right? The pews, the podium, my desk at work. In fact, it would have been cheaper to build our own podium than to go buy one that had been imported from somewhere else in Europe with the import tax, the VAT tax, and all that stuff. And so we had things built, and what uh, the, the 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 senior pastor and the 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 head missionary, our team leader, he had the podium built and had a computer built in there uh, with a monitor built in and glass on top, uh, and that way, he, that way he or the worship leader could run the slides, the PowerPoint, the, the worship slides as they were singing. It wasn't a very big room, and it, it just made things more convenient. And then when we were teaching seminary, we could show our slides right there and not have someone doing it from the back. It was uh, a really good system. As you can imagine, in a country as poor as Albania, especially when I was there 10 years ago, or I left 10 years ago, uh, most Albanians did not own computers, and if they did, they didn't have the money for internet. Personally, I had internet, and the way they did it was they actually flung an ethernet cable about 300 feet to the next building. There are just cables everywhere in the sky. It it was not a very uh, good system. So we had this podium with a computer inside with internet. So you can imagine a lot of the seminary students and people in church and things like that when we weren't using that room would come and use the internet in the church seminary podium. And that would include the security guards of the building. As you can imagine, it was a nicer part of town being the former residence of the dictator. And they would stay up all night watching... The building, and when they got bored, they would come and use the computer and and surf the internet because all the other computers in the school were locked down. There was one security guard in particular that liked to use that computer to look up inappropriate images and videos on the church seminary computer built into the church podium in the church sanctuary. In fact, after one such graveyard shift the next day, our team leader had a very important meeting in that room. And as he opened up the computer, out popped all of these ads and pictures from the night before. It it doesn't sit well with you, does it? There's something that seems especially wrong to use a church's building's sanctuary to practice such gross sin. There's a certain level of stigma in our own minds regarding sin we may commit on a regular basis, but simply wouldn't do in a church building, even when it's empty. There's just something special about that building. But I want to tell you that your thinking and feeling strange right now about that man's sin is wrong and it misses the point. As special as a building is, it's just a building. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. What makes it gross is not where he did it, it's that he did it. What makes it gross is not what you did or where you did it or what you did it with. It's that you did it at all as a temple of the Holy Spirit. You see, we we get caught up uh, in, in all of these representations of things. Church buildings, church podiums, conservative politicians. And you miss the whole point of who you are and the significance of who you are. And who resides in you. And how gross it is that you would engage in sexual immorality. Not because I can't believe you did it with that person. Why would you do it there? In your own house. With your kids sleeping. Oh, that's bad. But you know what's worse? The fact that you did it to the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the reality of the redeemed who we are, our makeup, our constitution. And Paul presses this point further in the rest of verse 19, which brings us to the second aspect of redemption, to combat immorality, the command of the Redeemer. We've seen the constitution of the redeemed and now the command of the Redeemer. We just saw, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And then we see his command whom you have from God and that you are not your own. The residency of the Holy Spirit is not just an issue of empowerment and conviction for the believer. It is a matter of authority over the believer. Let me say that again. The residency of the Holy Spirit is is not just an issue of empowerment and conviction for the believer. It is a matter of authority over the believer. This goes back to us underplaying the role of the Holy Spirit. We know that he has a unique role that we're thankful for. He empowers us to obey. He convicts us along with our consciences over our sin. But don't stop there. He has authority over you as God, very God. This great truth of the Christian being the sanctuary of God is a gift. It's an amazing gift. The Holy Spirit, Paul says, was given to us by God, by God the Father. The reason he is here with us is because of God's grace. He could have easily said, here you go, do it, and not given us any help. But he gives us help, his own help. And since all of this is true, we are not our own. We belong to God. We saw this very clearly throughout this series. But the vocabulary and imagery Paul is using here comes from the slave market of his day, which we'll see more of in verse 20. Many of those slaves under the Roman Empire were enemies that had been captured in war. You've seen the depictions, they're coming in the great general coming in and fanfare, and then there's all of these prisoners of war coming in. And those individual captives from other lands could be purchased for a price. And according to Roman law, those who ransom these captured enemies then become the property of the person who freed them. We understand how slavery works. And this individual that was purchased now belongs to this Redeemer. In the same way, Paul is saying that we now belong to God. As stated last week, our redemption is not just found in our immaterial selves, but he has redeemed our physical bodies as well. So when it comes to the misuse of our physical bodies for immorality, Paul is saying that your body is under the authority of the command of God so stop doing with it whatever you want as you please do with it as God desires in other words you are not given the right to use your body however you want the ability yes the right no you've heard me often speak about your possessions belonging ultimately to God Your money God gives you to use, but it is His. Your time is His. Your talents are His. Even your children are ultimately His. You are stewards. They are a gift. And this truth is nowhere more profound than your own physical body. It is yours for all all intents and purposes, but ultimately it is God's. It is God's. And just like with our possessions, we can use our bodies in an ungodly manner even when those bodies are not ours. So, Christian, avoid immorality. Not just because of how it affects your body, as we saw last week, but also because that body is not even yours. It's not even yours. When I was a pastor at Grace on Campus, a college ministry at UCLA, simply because of the age group I was shepherding, the uh, single college students, there was a lot of struggle with impurity, uh, usually just with themselves, if you know what I mean. And despite all the times that I counseled people, despite all the accountability I gave, despite all the confrontation and encouragement, there's one case that sticks out to me because of its uniqueness. Like many of the students who sought prayer and accountability, this individual was struggling with pornography on the Internet. And like many students at GOC, he lived with many other students from GOC, not only for the fellowship, but because of the exorbitant cost of housing in West L.A., just a stone's throw away from Bel Air. But unlike many students at GOC, and what made his sin especially noteworthy and memorable and heinous, is that he would use his godly Christian roommate's computer to look up said pornography. Sometimes, on a side note, he was Very particular, because we all gave rides to people for, for church. As you know, not many people have cars in college. And he was very quick to point out and rebuke people who didn't, for instance, and this was his favorite, stop and wait for the legally required, I believe, four seconds at a stop sign, which, by the way, I find very common people who struggle with gross sins that they've given up on become very legalistic on smaller issues. And as gross as his sin was, the level to which his conscience was seared and the degree to which his selfishness took over was exemplified by his disregard for others and their possessions. Those other guys, and I know other guys use a computer too, because Alan's computer was the fastest, and other guys didn't have computers at that time. They may not have been struggling with that sin, but surely they would have been after seeing a thing pop up just because they're trying to write a term paper. But he didn't care. He didn't care about God. He didn't care about his body. He certainly didn't care about the purity of his roommates. And again, there's something unique to think about that you would engage in such a gross, immoral act and then use someone else's computer to do it. Not even bothering to clear out the viruses, to wipe out the saved images, wipe out the history, anything like that for the sake of someone else. Listen, guys. How much worse when we use our bodies, which belong to someone else, for the sake of impurity. A computer is a thing. It's a purchased possession. It can be rebooted, thrown away, replaced. It's not redeemed, and the Holy Spirit does not reside in it. He resides in you. You and your body belong to him. Don't grossly use someone else's possession for your own sinful desires. Aspect number three. The cost of the redeeming. The cost of the redeeming. Look at the beginning of verse 20. For you have been bought, purchased with a price. This goes back to the imagery of the slave market. God didn't just call dibs, you're mine. He didn't just point and say, oh, that belongs to me. You know what this reminds me of? Which has nothing to do with this. I just want to share this with you. My first experience ever with a pinata when I was a little kid, I remember was in the garage of the guy we carpooled with to school. I I had heard of pinatas, never done one before, and finally the guy, you know, boom, and all the candy spills out. And I'm one of the kids with their little bag that the parents gave, and we're grabbing all the candy, right? And then there's this little girl who's like over there, points at the candy I'm grabbing and yells, that's mine. Get away from it. And I think she did that to everyone. Scarred me for life. That's that's not just what God did. Saw someone he liked. Saw something that he wanted. That's mine. Dibs, get away. That's mine. No. You belong to him because he bought you. You belong to him because he purchased you. You were a captive of sin, and he paid your ransom. This word bought is an old word that simply speaks of buying something in the marketplace. Now here, Paul doesn't mention the price, but we know what it is. 1 Peter 1.19, the precious blood of Christ. Matthew 20.28, 20, he gave his life a ransom for many. It's because of this that God has the right of ownership over our bodies. It's not a fact of creation. It is a fact of redemption. It's because of this that God has the right of ownership, proprietorship over our bodies. It's, it's, it's his. They're his. And the word for here that he, he begins with shows that Paul is explaining why and how we are not our own. And we see an emphasis on the fact that the body is for the Lord, back in verse 13, in that we are his rightful possession. And the evidence of this twofold reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the redemption we have through the sacrifice of Christ. We are his because of those two things. And when a slave was purchased back then, the slave now gave everything he had in terms of his abilities, his existence, to the new owner. And it evolved a choice, a willful choice to relinquish your own status or pursuit of it, your own selfishness or pursuit of it. And in doing so, there was an emphasis in the slave's life of his new connection to someone who was higher up in the social structure. Do you get and see this beautiful picture of our belonging to Christ? We give up self for the privilege of saying, I belong to someone, something better, God and His kingdom. We give up our sin we give up our selfishness, we give up our, that's mine, this is mine, these are mine, I look at what I want, I search up what I want, I bought this computer, it's mine, I do with it as I please, it's my money, it's my house, they're my kids, no, 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 why would you even want to do that? That's like the slave saying, no, 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 I don't want something better. I don't want to live in a house. I don't want to eat every day. Just let me stay as a slave of the system of the Roman prison system. I don't want, why would I want to ride in a nice chariot and, and go be part of your nice farm? Send me back into the shackles so they can throw me in the Colosseum and lions tear me apart in two days. Why would you want that? Because that's what it is when you say, I want her. I want him. I want that. Mine. Me. You're saying, no, no, no. I don't want God. I don't want to be claimed by the creator of the universe. And why not? Because you like stuff too much. You You like your own sin. Fear of man is a big one. You're going to capitulate out of the fear of those that your God will one day judge or hopefully redeem? It doesn't make any sense. I get it, easier said than done. But you've got to grasp this principle there is a connection to someone greater, and that came at a cost. It came at a cost. He bled and died for you. Well, we've seen the constitution of the redeemed, the command of the redeemer, the cost of the redeeming, and finally, the conclusion of the redemption. The conclusion of the redemption. What's the end goal? After all has been said and done, what is the conclusion? Therefore, glorify God in your body. This is the point of it all. These two verses, this whole passage, your whole life. Every word in Scripture, this is the point of it all. This is the conclusion. This is the goal. This is the end of the whole section we've been looking at in Paul's logic We glorify God in all things, but especially in our bodies, by refraining from sexual immorality. In the same vein as the relinquishing of the rights of ownership over our beings, over our bodies, we glorify God because that's what's called for under this new management. You know that repentance is a 180-degree turn. We see, uh, for the sake of time, we won't go there. Though the word repent or repentance is not used in Ephesians chapter 4, we see many examples of that. The thief should not just stop stealing. He should start working and then give to others. Right? If your words tear people down, don't just stop talking and just have small talk all the time. Start encouraging, edifying, glorifying be a part of the grace of God to others. It's a 180-degree turn. You've heard me say this before. If you're going home after service and you live in San Francisco and you actually accidentally get on the 92 and find yourself in Fremont, that doesn't help. It's 90 degrees. You don't say, let's keep going, we'll get there. You've got to turn a whole 180 degrees around. And so when it comes to this, you can't just stop doing something. It's not enough to end that affair. It's not enough to stop looking at things or thinking lustfully about another person. That's step one. That's good. But that's just 90 degrees. That's just put off. You must also put on, which in general terms is right here, glorify God in your body. In other words, just not doing something is not enough. Now use your body for service to the Lord, His people, and the world. If you're married, stop that and start rekindling your marriage and working on it emotionally, spiritually, and physically, as we'll see in chapter 7. Don't just turn off the computer. Start using your computer for good. Start using your time for good. Don't just stop those fantasies in your mind. Use that incredible gift of a human brain that God has given you for good. Start edifying and encouraging and serving the people that you once just used as objects in your mind. See, the slave who is purchased at a high price does not just move into his master's domain and just lounge around doing nothing. He works. He adopts his master's values. He follows his master's orders. He lives in accordance with his new identity by representing his master. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. A familiar verse to many of you. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship all of that, pages and pages and pages and decades upon decades of writing in the Old Testament telling us about the sacrificial system says, now you're it. How thankful for are we for the uh, incredible wisdom of God that he gets that we wouldn't get it, and he puts living sacrifice? Because you know that there are Christians out there who would, if the word living wasn't there would take this too literally present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to god which is your spiritual service of worship serve god obey god be holy and as i've mentioned to you before one pastor one commentator once said the problem with living sacrifices is they have a tendency to squirm off of the altar. That's what we do when we sin. We want to present ourselves, but we kind of take a step back, especially when it comes to this sin. So let's endeavor to do that. How more clear can this be? Present your body as a living and holy sacrifice. This isn't just physical body, you understand, but everything you do with your body, as we saw last week. Every word, every thought, every keystroke, every step, every phone call, every Zoom call, every everything. It's all about redemption, four aspects of redemption that combat immorality. The constitution of the redeemed, who we are, a temple. The command of the Redeemer, We are his temple because he purchased us with his blood, the cost of the redeeming and the conclusion of the redemption. Glorify God in your bodies. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. When I was in seminary, I was driving uh, a car that belonged to my brother. It was a nice car. It was a car that most seminarians would not be driving. And there was a new seminary student who was, honestly, I, I don't remember where he was from, but from the south somewhere based on his accent. And he saw my car. And he saw the special aftermarket labeling on it. And he said, is that your car? Where did you get that car? Because he knew about all the special extras. And I had to explain that my brother didn't actually buy that engine. He just bought the thing on the back and and stuck it and bought the spoiler system, I believe. He said, well, regardless, he's like, I used to be really into cars. You know, me and my friends at church back home. We would all get together on weekends, and we would detail our cars together, and we'd work on our cars, and it was our thing. He said, "Would you like me to do that with you? And we can hang out, and I can show you how to do it. You know, you can drive your car out, and we'll we'll wash it, we'll detail it together." I said, "Okay, you know, I was I was pretty much in, in full time ministry at the time, and in seminary, so I uh, ended up." not doing it, but I, I kind of want to engage him and say, well, how do you do that? What, what's so different about me just taking it, you know, to the, the automated car wash, which I think gave him a mild heart attack when I told him that's what I do. He said, well, if you're going to come, here's what you need. And he gave me a list of supplies to purchase to bring to detail the car. Of all the things that he listed, I only remember one to this day. Keep in mind, this was almost 20 years ago. He probably mentioned things like buckets, you know, a a microfiber mitt, things like that. I'm just guessing because that's what everyone uses. I don't remember. But I do remember the one thing that he added to his list. Keep in mind we're talking about washing a car. He said, and bring a box of Q-tips. Now, you got to be really into detailing cars if you need to use Q-tips. What do you, I mean, I can't even think of what I would wash with a Q-tip in my home. A, a Q-tip. I suppose repeating Q-tip over and over, you get the point. They're ti- A Q-tip for a car. But he was into cars. And he knew a lot about detailing. He knew a lot about making a car look perfectly clean. And so he would use Q tips. When we talk about sexual immorality, what's your Q tip? Ah, It's just a fleeting thought, and it's just that one girl that I think about, and I I rarely see her. Not a big deal. Bring out your spiritual Q-tip. Because you see, my friend in seminary, he wasn't concerned about the people who would see my car going 65 miles an hour on the 405. Or if you've ever been on the 405, more like 15 miles an hour for three seconds, stop. 15. Okay, you get the point. He, was cared, he cared about what he knew, what he was concerned about. He knew that there was a tiny little seed or bit of dust under that hood that he needed to get with a Q-tip. And perhaps because of his background, he was concerned about other people who knew what cleanliness, holiness looked like. That would. She's a beauty. God. That's who we should care about. Doesn't matter if she knows. Doesn't matter if he finds out. Doesn't matter any of that. Doesn't matter if you were safe. Doesn't matter if you cleaned your cash. It doesn't matter. God knows, and God wants you to deal with all of it, even if it means something no one else will ever see, no one else will ever notice, and something that you need to dig deep to even find yourselves, use a Q-tip. Get rid of all of it. Despite the world's many, many justifications for sexual immorality, They don't even need to justify it anymore. It's part of our culture. It is sin. But when we take the Bible seriously and literally, it doesn't mean that we're prudes or that we're legalists. It means we recognize that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We know that we were bought with a price and we strive to glorify God with our bodies. In other words whatever level of repentance we need, no matter how much we go against the grain of society, no matter how much it hurts, no matter how many Q-tips we need, we acknowledge that it is God's body, God's choice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your desire for purity in our lives, that we might be more like you. Thank you that that is even a a concept that we are aware of because of your grace. I pray, Father, that we would be a people who don't think that this is not for us. I pray for those who are engrossed in a form of sexual immorality that you would grant them repentance, true repentance, to put off and put on. I pray for those who are here that may think that what they're doing is not a big deal, that they would be convicted by your word and by your spirit and repent. I pray that we would weed out every little sin to avoid every potential temptation. In this area and any other area of general immorality. I pray that our motivation would be because we love you. Thank you that repentance saves marriages, strengthens friendships. But I pray that would not be our primary motivation. I pray that our primary motivation would be, therefore, glorify God in our bodies. Reveal to us the grossness of our sin. Reveal to us our sins that we might